This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 30th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, staff writer Jennifer Cousin Frankel discusses ongoing research into the paradox of so-called healthy obesity. Next, researcher Colin Diane talks about approaches to slowing and maybe one day preventing type 1 diabetes in children. Finally, in the first installment of our series of monthly book segments on science and race, author Samuel Redmond discusses his book, Bone Rooms, From Scientific Racism to Human Prehistory, with guest host Angela Saini. Now we have staff writer Jennifer Cousin Frankel. She wrote a feature story this week on the complex relationship between obesity and health. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm happy to have you, and I'm going to try to be very careful about how I describe what's going on here. This is a very tricky topic. You know, was this difficult in general to research and write about? It was. I mean, I think the language we use is very important and very weighted, no pun intended. Oh, boy. Here. And there's really kind of a push and pull from both ends of the spectrum. So there are people who would say that obesity is generally unhealthy. And then there are other people who would say that's really not true. We've kind of adopted that idea, but it's not correct. So my story is trying to kind of walk the line here and do what I always try to do, which is to look at the evidence as best I can. And the first piece of evidence you present in your story is a really great opener. These are the most overweight mice that have ever been bred, I guess. They aren't necessarily metabolically unhealthy. Yeah. So these were mice created by a, a researcher who, who normally studies diabetes at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. And he created these mice. There was one set of parents who lacked the hormone leptin. Leptin is a hormone that's an appetite suppressant that essentially signals to us when it's time to stop eating, when we feel full. And the other parents of these mice overproduced another hormone called adiponectin, which is turned out by fat cells and is thought to support metabolic health, protecting against certain diseases like type 2 diabetes. So essentially, these mice didn't have leptin. They didn't know when to stop eating. But then they did make this other beneficial hormone, adiponectin. 
And the mouse pups kind of combined the traits of their parents. They ate nonstop. But unlike other leptin deficient mice and also people, there are people who um, cannot make leptin, they did not have metabolic abnormalities. They had normal cholesterol. They had healthy blood glucose. They didn't end up with type 2 diabetes. But they were over 100 grams. Yes. So these mice weighed about 130 grams, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but for a mouse, that's the equivalent of about 600 pounds in a person. So they were really, really obese. This is where we start to get to this idea of metabolically healthy obesity. The mice were large, they were eating out of control, but some of these markers for issues with cholesterol and glucose, they were within healthy ranges. Yeah, they really didn't have the the sort of the risk factors that obesity is thought to increase risk of getting. And the story here is not just, oh, well, if you have that hormone that's protective, that's associated with fat, then you're all good. The researchers that you talk about are really trying to figure out what uncouples weight and health status. You know, what are some of these differentiating factors? Can you give some examples of what they're looking at? Yeah. And so first, you know, I'd say it's really important to mention that just as with any other biologic difference or condition, there's a lot of variability here. So we know that there are people who are overweight or obese. Obese is defined as having a body mass index above 30 and overweight is 25 to 30. So there are people who are particularly who are obese and who do look metabolically healthy. And then there might be somebody who's lean, who is not metabolically healthy. Obviously, there are a lot of individual differences. But when we talk about obesity, As one researcher said to me, there are different subtypes of obesity, and some of them we kind of understand and some of them we don't. So one of the differences is how one carries one's fat. There are a couple different places where fat can be stored in the body, and one is is subcutaneous, meaning under the skin. So there you would have fat under the kind of like the thighs, the upper arms, the backside, and the other area is visceral, which is kind of behind the muscles in the abdomen. You might see someone with a bigger belly, and there that person might have excess visceral fat. And what scientists know from having studied this is that visceral fat tends to be associated with a much higher risk of different metabolic conditions or markers that aren't healthy than subcutaneous fat. And subcutaneous fat can be healthy too. You know, we need fat. So if you don't have fat, you've got a problem. And storing it subcutaneously is considered healthy. That's a, that's a good storage space for fat. One of the debates that you touch on in your story is this definition, you know, if we were going to make one of someone who has metabolically healthy obesity, what are the different camps? How might this be staked out? Yeah. So, you know, of course, if we want to study something and also use it in the clinic, we need to have a definition. And right now there is not a definition that's universal or universally agreed upon for metabolically healthy obesity. One definition that's been not uncommon is essentially kind of the absence of obvious metabolic concerns, in particular, the absence of something called metabolic syndrome, which is a constellation of risk factors that increases one's risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And, you know, lean people can have metabolic syndrome. People who are obese can have it. And some people say, if you don't have metabolic syndrome and you are obese, you're metabolically healthy. Other people may question that because they say, well, you cannot have metabolic syndrome, but you can still have markers of ill health. You can still check some of the boxes, but not all the boxes. 
So you could have high blood sugar, for example, but not have metabolic syndrome. Another question is, what's the goal here? Is the goal to say that somebody who's metabolically healthy and who is obese doesn't die any sooner than somebody who is metabolically healthy and lean? There was another definition recently proposed that looked really just at mortality across different weight classes and proposed another definition of metabolically healthy obesity based on that, saying that, you know, this is what we care about. And so let's define it on that basis. Mm -hmm. Well, the first two you talked about, you know, whether or not metabolic syndrome is present or whether one or two parts of that are present, they create a much different landscape of obesity. So for example, in the United States, where 40% of adults are considered obese, what percentage of them would be metabolically healthy depends on which definition. And it's a very big difference. Yeah, it's a huge range. And depending on your definition, and there have you know been a lot of different studies on this, I, I would say anywhere from about 5% to more than half of people with obesity would be considered metabolically healthy. So that's such a difference. Another quote that you have in the article says, maybe metabolically healthy obesity exists, but it could just be a stop along the way to having problems later. Yeah. And that was something that I think researchers kind of struggle with how to think about that. So there are a few features that make one more likely to be metabolically healthy if one has obesity. One is being a woman. It's more common in women to be metabolically healthy if obese. Another is being younger. The third is having a BMI under 35. But the piece about being younger is really important. So if you look at cohorts of adults of different ages, you might see that a higher percentage who are younger are metabolically healthy if they are obese or if they're lean for that matter. You know, all of us are more likely to develop metabolic issues as we get older. So researchers might say, well, you know, maybe you're metabolically healthy now at 40 with a BMI of 35, but what's going to happen to you at 60? Are you going to be metabolically unhealthy? But someone else might say, well, but if you have an extra 20 years of not being metabolically unhealthy, you know, that's pretty beneficial versus somebody who has, say, type 2 diabetes when they're 40. You know, that's a big difference. So there's a debate there, but I think there is agreement to some extent that, you know, if you're metabolically healthy right now, that is important. Right. There are a lot of problems for people carrying excess weight outside of metabolism, like cancer or joint pain, things like that. You know, my story is really focused on metabolic health. Right. And I think it is important to remember that there are other health concerns associated with obesity. Sleep apnea is another one that's pretty common, particularly in people who are who really struggle with obesity. But yes, there's a higher risk of cancer. There's a higher risk of osteoarthritis and so on. So met metabolism, doctors and researchers, you know, will say that's not the only concern, but it's a big one. Despite obesity's links with metabolic issues and other health concerns, focusing on weight loss as treatment might not be the best idea. Well, I think there's disagreement in this field and there is disagreement among um, advocates who worry about discrimination and other concerns and then researchers and doctors. One thing that people really do agree on is that we do not do a good job in general of helping people who have obesity. And studies have shown that it's, it's really tough to keep off weight that's lost. Weight can be lost, but then over one year, two years, five years, not necessarily all of that weight, but a lot of that weight is likely to be regained just statistically if you're looking across a population. Physicians I talked to said they have seen so many people really struggle with this and kind of lose and regain. And it's it's just so, so difficult in so many ways. And it's not really medically helpful. So one question is, you know, do we need to kind of 
recalibrate or reframe how we treat people with obesity in a medical setting. Right now, we look at someone and we see their weight. And of course, that's true, whether it's in medicine or just in general, but we don't see what's happening inside their body. So we might see somebody who is carrying what looks like a lot of extra weight, but they might have great cholesterol and great blood glucose and no type 2 by diabetes. And then there might be someone who is not as overweight, but does have those problems. And so if we're talking about weight loss and people might want to lose weight for all sorts of reasons, but if we're talking about weight loss, we might want to consider success based on metrics beyond just the number of pounds lost or the percentage of body weight loss. You know, is somebody who's starting with high blood glucose improving that by losing some weight? And that can be, I think, really helpful. Right. So if the focus of metabolic health are these biomarkers, then should those biomarkers be the focus of treatment or someone's plan to get healthier? Yeah. Definitely. And I think, you know, some physicians, you know, probably do that already and then others don't. I wouldn't say nobody is is focused on that, but there is some question about does this need to permeate medical care a little more and, and could that be helpful in a number of different ways? There's also some problems where if a person goes to the doctor and they have a health complaint, a lot of doctors focus on weight loss and forget about the health complaint that got them there in the first place. That's something that I, I heard about in reporting the story. They may forget about the health complaint or they may say that the only way to solve the health complaint is by losing weight. And that may be possibly one way to find improvement, but it may not be the only way. And then there are people who who have obesity who may just not go to the doctor because they know that this is what's going to happen and you know they don't want to deal with that. So I think it, it is a real problem right now. As scientists tease apart the mechanisms at work here, what are doctors supposed to do today when the patient comes in and yes, you know, they want to be healthy? One point that several, um, several people I spoke with made to me and, and they treat patients themselves is the importance of exercise or movement, as some like to call it, because exercise can sound a little intimidating and really moving around more, you know, going for hikes or walks, doing yoga, swimming, any number of different, different forms of, of movement or exercise can be hugely beneficial metabolically. It can improve the body's response to insulin. It can help clear fat from the liver. And that can happen, you know, even without someone losing much weight. So a number of people I spoke with felt that that's something that's something they advise. And they also feel like it's more attainable, doable for a lot of people if we think of ways to, to make it fit what they are comfortable with. And medically, it can be really beneficial and psychologically beneficial potentially too for all of us, not just for people with obesity. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. Jennifer Cousin Frankel is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the news story we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with researcher Colin Diane about preventing type 1 diabetes in childhood. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin. Up until 1921, a type 1 diabetes diagnosis was a death sentence. By the beginning of 1922, 
Insulin was being administered, this time to a 14-year-old boy in Canada. Today, TID has become a chronic disease. This week, as part of a package on type 1 diabetes, Colin, Diane, and colleagues write a review on preventing type 1 diabetes in childhood. Hi, Colin. Hi there. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. Can you describe how we get from autoimmune disease to not enough insulin to diabetes? An autoimmune disease means that the immune process is attacking parts of our own body and a very specific part. Because in type 1 diabetes, the only cell that's targeted is the beta cell that makes insulin. It attacks the beta cells. There are antibodies, but actually the damage to the beta cells is probably predominantly due to T lymphocytes or white blood cells that crawl into the islet and then kill the beta cell. Mm -hmm. Now, in the past, the detection of this disease came at a point when many of the beta cells had already been lost. Typically, you write about 12 years of age. But there is a way to detect it earlier. What are some of the ways that researchers are looking to detect type 1 diabetes before it's progressed so far? So we seem to be able to lose about 80% of our ability to make insulin before the, the glucose level goes up. But we can detect the autoimmune process. And the most sensitive way we do that now is with detecting antibodies to the beta cells, to proteins within the beta cell. So these are all molecules, proteins that are present only in the beta cell or almost only in the beta cell. So the presence of high titers of these antibodies suggests that you do have an autoimmune process going. There are other approaches you can take. Do you remember that the T cell response is what actually damages the cells? That's very tricky to measure. And people have tried a long time to measure T cell responses in the blood. But a third approach is to look at genetics because we can identify people at high risk. That doesn't say you've got the disease, but it helps us to focus on the people who are likely to get it. How early would it be possible to say, find an antibody to one of the proteins that would indicate that beta cells are going to be under attack at some point? You can detect it potentially in the first year, probably the best time if you wanted to catch as many people as possible is around the age of three years. Now, does it make sense to incorporate something like this into these population-wide screens that we do of infants? So it does make sense, but it's a moving target. So if you were to measure it, for example, in the UK, we think of this preschool vaccination that's around the age of three and a half. If we do that, we will catch about 50% of all the children are going to get type 1 diabetes during childhood. We'll have missed the ones that are going to be diagnosed at the age of one or two or three, and we'll miss some who haven't gotten their antibodies yet. So that's what I mean by moving target. You may have to do it at more than one time point. What are the benefits of knowing that type 1 diabetes is coming down the pike for a kid? We realize that there are benefits in several different ways. So the first is to do with the advantages of knowing early. And most children and adults, actually, when they're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, are diagnosed pretty late, which means after they've lost quite a lot of their insulin and they're beginning to get sick. When you lose that last part of insulin, the blood sugars go up pretty quickly. And then very soon you develop ketoacidosis, which is when there's so little insulin around that it's not switching off the ketone generating process. And then you can become very acidotic, end up in intensive care. And in the UK, at least one child every year or every two years dies in ketoacidosis at the first diagnosis because it was picked up too late. Wow. So this is a dangerous game to play. If you pick it up early, before the blood sugars have begun to rise, those people don't get ketoacidosis. 
then instead of a rate of around 30% of ketoacidosis at presentation, it drops to less than 5%. But I think there's a second really important advantage that maybe people who haven't dealt a lot with type 1 diabetes don't quite get. So when you're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, it means you're going to take insulin for the rest of your life. This is not just a tablet you have to swallow every day. Insulin is a drug you have to change every day according to exercise, according to your carbohydrate intake, according to other stresses that are happening. You have to monitor your sugar many times a day and make those adjustments. It is the most difficult drug we ask people to take. And there's a huge amount to learn. We often have courses lasting five days to teach people how to adjust their insulin. Now imagine trying to learn that when you're in intensive care, when you just had this shock of a diagnosis. Or when you're eight. Or when you're eight years old, exactly. Whereas if you're told a couple of years before it's coming, we know that when you're one year out, we'll be able to pick that up and we can start having classes. You can start talking to other people. You can start beginning to think about it. But what that does is you get over the shock of the diagnosis and you come to a calmer place where you can take all of this on board in a much more relaxed way. We believe that actually sets you up for the disease better for the rest of your life. There's also the idea of putting off the destruction, slowing things down through treatments. Can you talk about some of the approaches where you interfere with this progression of the autoimmune part of this disease? So getting screened is good. Once you have been screened, I mentioned the advantages of knowing early, but you obviously would prefer to have an intervention. So in 2019 was the first report of a monoclonal antibody against T-cells called the plizumab that transiently depleted T-cells and then allowed them to repopulate. And remarkably, that resulted in a delay in onset of type 1 diabetes by two, in fact, three years on average. And some of those people haven't even gotten their diabetes yet. Clearly, that tells us that the immune system is the key player here and targeting the immune system is going to be beneficial. And almost queuing up behind it, like planes trying to land on a runway, are several other immune interventions which have already shown benefit. And when I say they've shown benefit, they were generally tested in new onset cases. So we mentioned that when you're newly diagnosed, you have about 20% of your beta cells left. You can give immune interventions at that point and show that the remaining part of your insulin is lost more slowly. And there's, I say, at least six treatments that have shown benefits at that time. We're talking about delaying onset, but not necessarily completely averting the onset. That's why you say, you know, preventing childhood type 1 diabetes. Correct. And we're trying to think of a staged approach into this. So many of the other autoimmune diseases routinely use immune therapies. And I should just say, we're not talking about the kind of immune therapy that's used in transplantation. This is not destructive therapy that completely disables your immune system. It's the kind that's used routinely in inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile idiopathic arthritis from the age of two years old, in psoriasis, a skin disease. These have been used for over 10 years in the case of rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years. And what they've learned in rheumatoid arthritis is that one drug works for a while and then maybe it doesn't work. So now you need to switch to another and then another and another. And doing this, what they found is that you don't get the long-term destruction that people used to see of joints. And we can do the same thing in type 1 diabetes by just knowing where you are we can keep putting off the time that you need insulin. Right. And there are a lot of benefits in the long term to putting off that time to when you need insulin. Yeah, absolutely. With insulin comes hypoglycemia. 
With insulin comes all the carbohydrate counting, all the drug adjustment. If you don't need insulin, that means that your sugars are controlled by your own body. So here's the advantages. You don't need to think about insulin. Don't need to take it. You have pretty much normal blood sugar control with no effort. And the longer that you have good blood sugars, the more you reduce the risk of the long-term complications of diabetes. So blindness, kidney failure, foot problems, and so on. And we do know that early control is money in the bank. So it's actually better to have good control at the beginning than after 30 years, because it gives you advantages that last 20 or 30 years beyond that. The wild swings in sugar is bad for you, especially early. Yes. The reason that this is such a challenge is that insulin is such a dynamic hormone that we cannot mimic it. Even with the you know, advanced closed loop therapies, they try, but they don't quite manage what the body can do. Currently, less than 30% of people manage to control their blood sugars to target levels. And that doesn't mean completely normal. That's to the target that's been set. And even those who do, it's a huge effort for them and a worry about hyperglycemia day in, day out. So removing all of that, and particularly if you think about childhood, if you think about a, a child of eight, nine, 10 years old, they, they just want to go to school. They want to play. They want to run around. They want to do exercise. They don't want to be thinking about, oh, they have to have a jab here and a glucose check over there. And their parents also don't want to be worrying about hypoglycemia in the night and are they missing something? What's happening when they go to camp? All of that gets swept away for the period that you don't need insulin. And the next step that might be on the map here would be to avert this altogether, to do those early detections and to stop the disease in its tracks. It's further away, but can you talk about some of the options that are being considered for that approach? The drugs that I've talked about that are widely used are selective, but they're not absolutely beta cell specific. And what you'd ideally want is just to affect the immune response to those beta cells, the bad one, and leave the whole of the rest of the immune system intact. That would be the, the dream. So one way of thinking about it is that we do know that there are regulatory T cells. So as well as bad guys, um, destructive cytotoxic T cells, they're also ones that protect us. And they're present in everybody. And that's how you stop autoimmune diseases. So if you could give what I sometimes call an unvaccine, you could give a protein from the, the beta cell in such a way that you expand the regulatory cells not the way we normally do, which is to expand the destructive cells against a foreign microbe or infection, then that would be it. That would protect you. You could have booster jabs, kind of thing we do for COVID-19, and that would keep things going without negative impact on the rest of your immune system. Kind of saying, here's a piece of yourself, instead of saying, here's a foreign invader you should attack. Correct. We don't know how that platform would look, but there's a lot of people working in, in that technology. And those of us who work in the immune system know that it's actually much tougher to stop an immune process than to prevent it happening in the first place. So that once the immune system gets its teeth into things, it's got strong memory and it keeps trying to go back to that. That's why our vaccination works so effectively. So why can't we avert it in the first place? And to give you a sense of why that might work, in identical twins, there's a concordance for about 50%. That means that in 50% of cases, the identical twin never gets type 1 diabetes, even though they're genetically identical. So all of these things are telling us that there are things in the environment that are beyond genetics that influence whether you go from that step of genetic risk into actually getting autoimmunity ever. And that's what we want to try and target. And the belief is that the microbiome plays a large part there. Yeah, I was really surprised to read 
especially the end of the review, that we're suddenly talking about the microbiome. How, how could that be involved in the development of type 1 diabetes? From the moment that you are born, your body is colonized in the gut, it's on the skin. And so many parts of your body have microbes that live there day in, day out. And you can't spend all your time trying to destroy them. They're part of you. The immune system has to learn to deal with that. And so you can imagine they shape your immune system. They punch holes in the immune system by identifying things that you should not respond to, that you then begin to treat almost as self. And that can make you vulnerable, but it can also affect what happens in terms of autoimmunity if you're responding to, to bugs that look a little bit like your beta cell. So that's where the idea emerged. There's absolutely no doubt that your microbiome affects the development of your immune system. What's the evidence that this is linked with T1D? So what we do know is that there are certain bacteria, bifidobacteria. It's a peak that happens between about six and 12 months of age. And that peak seems to be associated with a higher risk of people going on to get the autoantibodies and then go on to developing type 1 diabetes. So the idea is that if we could actually change how that microbiome develops and particularly avoid this peak that some people seem to get of a particular bug, that actually that might shape the immune system, get it into much better shape in a form that it will resist any attempts of the environment to try and induce autoimmunity to the beta cells. In the far off distant future, we'll be shaping the immune systems of infants through the bacteria that live in their gut and on their skin. Exactly right. People are getting more and more scientific about this and identifying particular probiotics, particular mixtures of bacteria that live in your gut that you could populate. And the thought is that if you do it pretty much from birth, you can establish a stable, different microbiome and that that would then set you up to avoid things in the future. Now, you could do that to every child, but we have ways of identifying the people particularly at risk. And so we can start the um, probiotic from birth, particularly covering a period probably in the first 12 months uh, when it's critical how the microbiome is formed and thereby reduce substantially their chance of getting type 1 diabetes. So you could start with the microbiome. And if that reduces incidence by 50%, that's a good thing. And then as they seroconvert, that's a point at which we can think about maybe those antigen-specific interventions. And then later on, we can think about teplizumab, those drugs that are around now. And then we might have to give a few people insulin at the end of the day. But I often say to my medical students, I'd like it to be that when we see a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes in childhood, it's a real rarity. You know, the doctors gather around and go, look at this. That, that is so unusual. That's what I'd like to see. That would be amazing. All right. Thank you so much, Colin. Great. Colin Diane is a professor of clinical diabetes and metabolism at Cardiff University and senior clinical researcher at the Wellcome Center for Human Genetics at University of Oxford. You can find a link to the review we discussed and the rest of the special issue on type 1 diabetes at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Don't miss the first in our series of six book segments on the intersection of science and race. This month, host Angela Saney talks with Samuel Redman about his book, Bone Rooms, From Scientific Racism to Human Prehistory. Hello and welcome. I'm Angela Saini, science journalist, author, and host of this series of books podcasts. This is the first of six monthly episodes, each looking at a different book, exploring facets of the fraught subject of science and race. 
Today, I'm joined by Samuel Redman, Associate Professor of History at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Before graduate school, Redman worked at the Field Museum of Natural History, among others. And it was during this time that he became interested in the collection and interpretation of human remains. In 2016, he published Bone Rooms, From Scientific Racism to Human Prehistory in Museums, looking at the work of American museums, including the Smithsonian, to tell the human story through skeletons. In the book, he writes, The act of organising bones on museum shelves represented something of a physical articulation of attempts to create a science to classifying humankind. As he shows, having something to measure and quantify doesn't mean that your research is apolitical. So Samuel, thanks so much for joining me. First of all, for those not familiar with this concept, what are these bone rooms that you mention in the title of your book? When I was a new intern looking around for missing collections, I first heard the term bone rooms and I I really didn't know what that was or what that meant, but it turns out there are these designated rooms or spaces within museum collections that hold hundreds and in many cases thousands of human remains that represent the legacy of collecting and, and science around the human body at natural history museums and museums of anthropology. If we go back to the 19th century, the world of research was quite a bit different than it was today. Colleges and universities, at least in the United States at that time, were still pretty sleepy places where people were doing things like memorizing, rote learning of Greek and Latin, training how to be priests and things of that nature. Museums, on the other hand, were some of the most cutting edge research spaces in the world. When uh, James Smithson gave his gift of his inheritance to the young United States. There was a huge debate about what should be done with that money. Should they create a national university? Should they create an astrological research institute or study astronomy? And what they landed on was a museum because museums in that era were considered some of the most important research engines. So if we're thinking about the construction of ideas about race and humanity and human anatomy, It became really interesting to me not just to look at some of these intellectual texts or these sort of trustees that people would put out, but to think about the physical evidence that they were trying to gather to match those things or to support the different ideas that they had. And ultimately, many of these things ended up in spaces like bone rooms. What I found fascinating about your book is just how central uh, these skeletons became to scientific understanding of race. And it wasn't as though the skeletons came first and then the idea of race emerged. The idea of race was there and then the skeletons kind of reinforced it. Can you explain how that happened? So understanding those ideas, common ideas that were emergent in the 19th century and in some ways connected to things like debates about slavery and justifications for enslavement of human beings from Africa and elsewhere around the world. It became this really complicated project that was multifaceted. People disagreed about the nature of these things. But importantly, and I think that this speaks to your question, bones were seen as a fairly stable data point or a way to sort of render these questions with some stability. So measuring people out in the field, it proves cumbersome and unwieldy. Human bones are actually pretty stable in that you can take a human skull and if kept under the right conditions, will more or less look like the same human skull 50 or 100 years later. So that became a really important tool 
for people who were utilizing the science of the era to try to unpack ideas about racial difference. This is deeply imbued with what we now rightly consider racist science. I also think that there are some interesting sort of fundamental questions that are still pertinent and relevant to us today that if we try to look without these horrible racist actions and connections to scientific racism, we still wonder why people look different from different continents. We still wonder what potentially are there differences between the sexes and ideas about gender are really hotly contested in our public discourse today. All of those ideas in some ways had some connection back to the legacy of building these massive bone rooms. So it wasn't just like this esoteric thing that people were doing on the side. I argue that it becomes really central to all of these debates. And if you look at newspapers and magazines and major exhibitions, not just museum records, you can see how this was popularly debated and, and thought about and attractive in some ways to people in, in the United States. I mean, you could say that it would have been possible for people to look at skeletons and study human difference or even study the idea of race in a neutral way. But embedded within all of this was not just classification. There was also hierarchy, wasn't there? Without a doubt. One of the major scientists right off the bat that I quote says something like, I think that American Indians should be ascribed a lower place on human hierarchy than Euro-Americans. Another collector that I look at, Alistair Blitschka, who's a complicated, nasty guy, he says at one point that African-Americans, in his view, are capable of 80% of what the typical Euro-American is capable of. I mean, it's, it is intensely linked up to racialist and indeed racist ideas of the era that were quite common, but it, in some meaningful ways, those ideas motivated the actions of collecting. I was just going to say, these people that you mentioned are not marginal figures either. I mean, they are central to science and museums. Without a doubt. So I think there, there are sort of two things happening there that I, was, that I became really interested in bone rooms. But one of the things I became interested in, and this is a problem I argue with a lot of history of science, is that sometimes we latch on to these major figures in the story and think about individuals that listeners may have heard of, like Samuel George Morton, who was called by some the quote-unquote father of American anthropology, and really sets a precedent for a lot of this collecting in his book, Crania Americana, that really encourages people, especially around the era of the Civil War, to view race a particular way, and also get in on the act of collecting. As I went through these museum records, one thing that really stood out to me as surprising is that it wasn't just these major big name scientists. It was farmers and missionaries and amateurs and military officers and medical officers and many, many, many other people who somehow caught wind of this, somehow knew that there was a project to collect human remains at the Smithsonian Institution and were glad to box these up and send them, sometimes at their own expense, to the Smithsonian. So that's what I became really interested in. Where does this intellectual history that we often sort of think we know in relation to Samuel George Morton and figures like Alistair Lichka, who I should say becomes the first head of the Smithsonian's physical anthropology program and takes it from a collection of about 4,000 sets of human remains and builds it, you know, maybe doubles, triples the size of the collection 
And he does it not just by collecting on his own, which he does. He goes down to places like Peru. He goes to Alaska. But he's also collecting remains through these sort of almost like whisper networks that we haven't really unpacked and talked about how they play a role in this. Because it's, it's interesting to me that Morton collects a couple hundred skulls, but how do you get 30,000 skulls at the Smithsonian or 30,000 sets of human remains, I should say? It seems like there's a little bit of a gap there that you know, I wanted to try to fill in with the book Bone Rooms. And that's one of the fascinating things about your book is that it's almost this huge national project or international project of citizen science or citizen race science, even that everybody is getting in on it. And it was very opportunistic the way that you describe how um, particularly the remains of indigenous peoples were collected um, with very little care about how communities might feel about this. And obviously, in, in almost all these cases, they would have been shocked at this kind of collection, and yet people didn't seem to mind. They did it anyway. Why was that? Why, why on earth was that seen as acceptable to just grave rob in that way? Great question. Of course, like we've been talking about, the context is really important. And one of the things that I think when we think about this story, sometimes we're so connected or so thinking about the intellectual history of how these people are debating these phenomenon in. Europe and in the United States, that sometimes we lose sight of what I might call the cultural history or the social history. Involved in that, of course, is that as this is emerging, our phenomenon, like we've touched on already, like the Civil War and debates about the place of African Americans and these freedmen after the war. You know, should they be citizens? How should they fit within the national fabric? Well, of course, Native Americans at this time are still not considered citizens. They wouldn't be until the 1920s. They have this unique, tense relationship in many respects with people in the United States. There's this idea, this sort of contradictory idea that people want to wedge out American Indians and push them to the side. And yet they're also their quote unquote antiquities as far as material remains are somehow considered part of the national heritage in the United States. And they make us different than the colonial powers in Europe. So this is seen in some ways as an asset, especially there's a major turning point with the 1906 American Antiquities Act, where people start viewing this as, as more of an asset. And burials and remains, as I show in Bone Rooms, figure in prominently to the conversation around that act. So I think, yes, we need to think more about this national story where Native Americans fit in, and they've always fit in sort of uncomfortably, but they're exploited to this extreme degree. So this represents sort of this fundamental problem or tension between this emergent science with this very thin line, you're right, between the evolution of archaeology and outright grave robbing, where there were letters that I found in the archives that I described that ultimately ends up in the Smithsonian collection, where army medical officers or army officers say, I stole this off of a funeral pyre. Native Americans were shooting arrows at me as I was doing this act of theft. But the teeth on this individual were so beautiful that I kept it on my mantle for 20 years before sending it to you, the Smithsonian Institution. So it becomes almost like a trophy in that A hundred percent. Sometimes when we're rendering this from reverse, we see this at an anthropology collection or an archaeology collection, and we think of it as co-joined with the history of those sciences which indeed they are in some ways, but it's this big complicated collection where there are indeed examples of outright theft and grave robbing. 
there are many, many more mysterious examples where things just showed up into the collection with very limited information. A part of me, without a doubt, says all of these remains should go home. As I encounter these really gut-wrenching stories that, from my view, suggest very little attunement to the wishes of the deceased or their ancestors or anything remotely resembling that. And it is something that museums and scientific institutions are having to confront now. Uh, you know, there's this very big reckoning happening within the sciences when, when it comes to race and particularly human remains. There have been attempts at repatriation and dignified burial. What are your thoughts on what's happening right now? How, how are scientists behaving at this moment? In 1990, a law was passed in the United States called NAGPRA, for short, or the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And that law, without a doubt, even if we look at it now as incomplete or with some degree of right-minded cynicism, it's a major turning point in thinking about this whole story in the United States, in that recognized tribes, federally recognized tribes, were able to legally demand the return of burial goods, objects of uh, cultural patrimony, so significant across the whole tribe for human remains. And that was a major step, but there were barriers thrown up. People were very often abiding by the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. And it, it was very specifically written that it was an act about grave sites. It's intended to address this problem of looting. There are very real problems that this connects to but it also misses a whole bunch of things. For example, a question that I think has come up in 2021 and 2020, why is it that this law should govern the collection of Native American remains when many African American remains were collected under similar ethical guises with problems associated with that, but they don't have that same legal recourse? The remains that really were probably most hotly contested this year in the United States involved. Here we are in the pandemic. We're doing a lot of things remote learning and via the internet. And a professor at the University of Pennsylvania utilized in her teaching or used some remains of a bombing victim from 1985 who died in a police action, what's called the MOVE bombing in Philadelphia. That hit people, from my view, in a really visceral way to know that there were people's living ancestors who were there and, and that didn't know what had happened to these remains, it struck people as intensely problematic and a breach in ethical norms and behaviors, even if the science maybe hadn't caught up with that yet. And I think that's an important point, that the sort of scientific best practices or ethics may have allowed for this. But in the court of public opinion, it was an egregious violation of ethical norms. Thank you, Samuel Redman. It's been a pleasure. And thank you at home for listening. I'm Angela Saini, and I hope you'll tune in for our next episode one month from now with Professor of Medical Science Lundy Braun discussing her book, Breathing Race into the Machine. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, Write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can subscribe there or anywhere you get your podcast. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Special thanks to intern Claire Hogan. 
Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.